We're going to do something a little bit different tonight. As I mentioned before, have a, a small core here, but I think the key is that most of you, if not all of you, want to be here. And that is really, really important. When we study God's word and when we listen to what it is that he has to say, it's really important that we are paying attention. And so I'm going to talk about some things tonight. The Lord put some things on my heart for a while, but I just never was able to develop it and really study it um, until now. And now I present it to you. But uh, the things that we're going to talk about today might stretch you. But just bear with me. You may not understand why we're even talking about half of this stuff. But bear with me. Because I think the end will be made clear. Not even telling you where to turn yet. We'll find out. But I want to open up by asking you a question. Is it ever okay to torture someone? Is it ever okay to torture someone? I think most people obviously side on no, because torture is inflicting harm on someone without killing them, but it seems like unwarranted harm oftentimes. But let's say that you were, um, and this has happened before, there's a single mom who has her baby in the back seat, and she pulls into a gas station, goes up to the cashier, leaves the baby in the car for five minutes, which parents should never do, but she does because she needs to get something from inside. And as she does, someone carjacks her car and takes her car and drives away. And so the mom's just freaking out. What do we do? What do we do? And so she calls the police and the police are tracking him down and they're saying, well, once he realizes there's a baby in the back seat, he'll, he'll ditch the car immediately. So you don't have to worry about that. We'll just need to wait for the appropriate time. He does ditch the car. So the guy drives around, sees the baby in the backseat, ditches the car because he doesn't want the baby to suffer. But it's a hot day. And so the windows are open, but really the cars can get really hot. And uh, it can get up to well above 100 degrees in a car, especially on a day like this. So the baby, if it doesn't find help soon, will... Uh, you know, die of heat exhaustion. So it's in the back seat, and the police found the guy. So the police find the guy, and they ask him, where did you hide the car? Where did you hide the car? And he won't say anything. He doesn't say a word. But you figure if you beat it into him by punching him in the face and using force, you can get him to tell where the car is. Would that be okay? Would it be okay to inflict harm on someone so that a greater good would be possible. Or another example is, let's say that you had a terrorist who planted a bomb in New York City. And this terrorist um, planted a pretty big bomb in which it will kill hundreds of thousands of people unless it's deactivated. And so you have the terrorist and he's not talking. But you figure if you torture the terrorist, then he'll tell you exactly where the bomb is. Is torture okay at this point? And some people debate on this issue of applied ethics. Is it okay to torture someone if there is a greater good that is achieved? Now, in either case, 
even if we did argue that it is more morally justifiable, we would only do so because in each case, the person has done something that is deserving of punishment. The question is, is it enough to warrant torture? That's the real question. In both cases, someone has done something wrong and they deserve to be punished, but we're just not sure if we want to inflict bodily harm to that person. But consider the difference, because even if you say that's okay, which is that I'm not, that's not my point, but consider the difference when you take the same terrorist and let's say you torture him, but he's trained. So even if you torture him, he won't speak. But then you find out he has an innocent son. If you torture his son in front of him, then he'll talk. Then is it morally defensible to torture a child so that hundreds of thousands of people will be saved? Now, these are the kinds of applied ethics questions that people debate about on whether it's morally justifiable or not. But no matter how you answer, there just seems something wrong about torture and hurting someone that is innocent. It's one thing if the person is deserving of punishment, but a person who has done nothing wrong does not deserve to be punished, even at the sake of a greater good that you might envision. So the question is, how is it fair that Jesus was tortured so that we can have peace? How is it fair that you and I get off clean and Jesus endured suffering? Because you see, it was our sin that put him on the cross. This wasn't the wrongdoing of other people. We, who were deserving of punishment, instead, our very sin put him on the cross. And he died for our sakes. So how is that fair? How is that even allowed? Because it would seem wrong if God the Father commanded Jesus, I want you to be tortured in order to be saving millions of lives so that they go to heaven. Even if millions of people go to heaven, even if Jesus raises from the dead, there seems something wrong about that. But here's the key. John 10, 17 through 18, Jesus said, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Here's the key that changes everything. The key is love. Jesus said, basically, I lay down my life so you don't have to pay with yours. He willingly decided to pay with his life so that we could have peace. Tonight we're going to focus on what Jesus endured to show his love for you. Which is summarized in the following sentence. Jesus gave himself to be wounded so that every single wound that you experience in this life is only temporary. Jesus was wounded so that no matter what wound you, you gather in your life, it is only, in the end, temporary. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 52, if you have your Bibles, please. Isaiah 52, verse 13. It says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very 
high. But here's a paradox here, because this is talking about Jesus. This is a prophecy about the Messiah, which is very strange that a lot of Jewish people that look at this don't believe in Jesus. Remember, this wasn't compiled together. The New Testament and the Old Testament weren't put together and written at the same time. So there are Jewish people that don't believe this is talking about Jesus. But read it for yourself and think about who this is describing. And so people read this verse and, and imagine that this, is, this exaltation is like a lifting up of Jesus' name. Like we sing in that song, you be lifted high, you know, on Sundays we've been singing that. But when it says that you'll be exalted and extolled and be very high, this is specifically talking about the cross. The cross is lifted up. The cross of shame is exalted. And this is the weird paradox here, that in his shame, he was exalted. It says in verse 14, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Astonished. People were astonished at his appearance because he was marred than any other man. And it, this is a hyperbole. You know, of course, people have been marred in, in the past. And it's not saying over all of history. But what it's saying is Jesus, when he had his beard plucked out, his face was so swollen that he wasn't even recognizable as a man. And so the people were astonished, not in exaltation, but in his humiliation. That this man, what did he do wrong? I can just imagine being one of the disciples being so confused. Why was it that Jesus was on trial? Even Pontius Pilate had no idea. Why is Jesus on trial? And he asked the people, well, so why are you bringing this man before me? He said, well, he claims to be God. Well, that's not my deal. We're the roaming guard. We don't have anything to do with your religion. So just deal with it yourselves. Oh, but he claims to be king. Jesus, do you really claim to be king? You really claim to overthrow the government? Are you really being accused of treason? And so I can imagine his disciples imagining, or I can imagine that his followers basically saying, they're not going to find anything. He's an innocent man. What could they possibly accuse him for doing? There's no way he'll be brought forth into the Jewish court and then, okay, the Roman court and then be killed, let alone crucified. So this was not a normal thing. How was it even possible that he was lifted up to the highest of all authorities and punished by the worst punishment? You ever wonder why Jesus was tortured? Why wasn't he just killed? You see, Jesus went through a torture not too many people think about. But if you've ever seen the movie The Passion, you might have an idea how when he was flogged with a whip, you know, they had lamb bones, shards of metal and different things wrapped into a whip and they would whip him 39 times. That was the normal. And so they whip his back and then pull it out and it gets stuck sometimes and rip off flesh. I'm not trying to gross you out, but what I am saying is this is intense. What Jesus went through and why? Why did he have to suffer? Okay, I understand why Jesus had to die for our sins, but why was the death so evil, it would seem? Why is it that he had to be mocked? 
Why is it that people punched him and plucked out his beard and mocked him by taking a crown of thorns, placing it on his head? And then when all the criminals are raised up on a cross with their crime above them, the only crime they had above Jesus was, here's Jesus, the king of the Jews. This seemed like the ultimate injustice. Why is it that Jesus himself was tortured? Realize that Jesus, when he was uh, captured and taken away, he didn't sleep that night. And he had to walk two and a half miles with a 75-pound cross on his back, or half of the cross. The whole thing was 300 pounds. He carried a 75-pound cross two and a half miles for his own trial. For his own sake? No. For someone else's sake. Why is it that he was tortured so brutally? Because people did not want him exiled. They wanted him shamed. People wanted Jesus to be humiliated. So they wanted God himself to be brought low and for themselves to be raised up. Remember the priests and the Sadducees and all these people got together and they sold him for silver. They sold him for money. They bribed other people to convince them, what is it that you value the most and what are you willing to sell your God for? What is your price? And Judas himself had a price. And he gave up the savior of the world for some pieces of silver. They wanted to raise themselves up for themselves to be seen as God and for God himself to be brought low. How evil. And we look at that and say, thankfully, I would never do anything that bad. But realize something very important today. This is exactly what sin does. Sin takes God and his standards of perfection and brings it down and says, I want to do things my own way. When you rebel against God and you sin, it's never just a sin. Any sin that you commit is deviating from God's plan and you proclaiming to God, I know how to run my life and I don't want you to have any part of it. And so I believe there's a lot of you here that don't have that testimony where you said, well, I was a, a drunk or I did a lot of drugs and I came to know Jesus. You know, I was addicted to pornography and I had a lot of sexual partners or I was a homosexual and a lot of you don't have that kind of testimony and you figure wow all right I'm not as bad as those people I could never be like that person over there I could never be like a, a murderer I could never be a pedophile and some of these terrible crimes we look at with disgust but realize the fact that you have not committed those crimes is God's grace and his mercy, nothing else. If you are left to your sin, any sin, and you let, allow it to grow to fruition, that's what it does to you. We're not any better than these people. The only difference is that we allow Jesus to come and change our lives. In other words, we are saved from what we could have become. I myself stand here before you saved from what I could have been. If God didn't snatch me from my addictions and pornography years ago, who knew that, who, who knows what I would have become? I definitely wouldn't be here now. I would have lived a very miserable life. I know a lot of people that were alcoholics. My own drummer was addicted to heroin. Who knows what he could have become? Who knows how desperate people can get 
when they don't have what they really want. When they don't have enough money to get their next fix, who knows what they'll do? Sometimes they'll hurt others. Sometimes they'll even murder. Why? Because in the moment, I didn't, I didn't really understand, but I didn't have the money and that person just punched me and the violence is happening. And before you know it, someone's dead. These things, you don't just wake up one day and you're a murderer. It's gradual. And if we're not careful, we, can be, we too can become hardened against sin. But the good news is Jesus himself said, I will take that for you so you don't have to go down that road. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And what does he say? And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. You are no longer a person who is sexually immoral. You are no longer someone who is unclean, but you've been washed by the blood of Christ. So you're no longer defined by sin, but defined by God's love in your life. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. In verse 15, so he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him for what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. But in chapter 53, it says, who has believed our reports? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. And he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Picture the scene for a second. This man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. You ever been just so familiar with being sad that it just becomes a theme of your life? This man was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And you can kind of think of and imagine for a second the night when Jesus was betrayed at the garden. The Bible records that he was sweating blood. It's a medical condition in which you are just so nervous that your blood vessels can rupture and it comes out your pores. And so it's very likely that as he's sweating blood, because he's not sweating because of the heat, he can start to get chills and he's all alone. Uh, there's been times that I've been getting the chills and it's because I've been so nervous that you start to shake and you don't even know why. I can imagine Jesus being in that same place. But what's the thing you look for when you're in a panic mode? What's the thing you look for when you're really distressed? You look for someone to help you. You look for someone, anyone that you can reach out to, someone that you can call and say, you just listen to what I have to say. And what did Jesus have? The hardest night of his life and all of his friends fell asleep. He said, can't you even stay up with me one hour? Many of us have friends that we can call and just spend all night with and we can stay up in the middle of the night, five in the morning, just crying with them and talking with them 
and that's good to have. But Jesus didn't have a friend to call because all of his 12 friends, one of them betrayed him, sold him for silver, and the other 11 fell asleep because they were just too tired from a long day. About to be betrayed and he had no one around him. He was mocked, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. We were not there for him when he was in sorrow. But notice, is it his own sorrow? Is this something, I mean, when we're sad, it's because of things that we've accumulated throughout the day. Something terrible has happened, you know. Something difficult in our life, a trial, it just, it's so much and we want to get out of it. We need to talk about what we're going through. But in verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. You know what that's saying? He took our sorrows, he bore our griefs and we thought he was just like Job. You remember Job's friends? He must have done something wrong to deserve this. Can you imagine the beard of Jesus plucked out, his face not even recognizable, and everyone around him, he must have done something really wrong or he wouldn't even be on trial. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. What did he do? He must have sinned in some way. But it was our griefs that he took upon himself. Are you ever burdened with sorrow for someone else? You ever just so consumed with someone else's problems, with their sin, with their family issues, and you just can't sleep at night? You're just so full of sorrow. This is what Jesus did for us so that we wouldn't have to carry that sorrow alone. So that you could bear one another's burdens, but we want to hold on tight to that burden and not give it over to him. But that is the very purpose for which he came to this world. Verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. Here is the paradox, ladies and gentlemen. He's chastised and we receive peace. He has, uh, he's whipped and we're healed by those whippings. What kind of wounds are these? What kind of wounds are these that, I mean, normal wounds heal themselves. When you get a cut, eventually it'll, it'll heal itself. But what kind of wound is inflicted in someone else and it heals someone else's wounds? I can think of an example in which someone who maybe has cancer in an organ and they can't heal that organ on their own. They need a transplant. Maybe it's a kidney and they need a kidney transplant. They need someone else to be wounded so that they can be healed. And that's what Jesus said. He died and he was grieved, not for his own sake, not for his own troubles, but for our transgressions. And he took it upon himself. The wounds of Christ heal the ones that we can't heal ourselves. You have a wound that you think is unhealable? Christ is there to heal it. Do you have a relationship difficulty, a wound that you think will never heal, a relationship with your father or your, your mother? Maybe you haven't talked in a while. 
I'm not saying this because I know a specific situation. I'm just saying maybe you're that person. And there's a wound you feel will never heal. Jesus came so that every single wound that you have can be healed. And if Jesus' death wasn't good enough, I don't know what is. Is it a sorrow? Is it a temptation? Is it a sin that you continually come back to? You see, apart from Christ, we have been fatally wounded. But if Christ can conquer the power of death, there is no wound that he cannot heal. That includes both physical healing and spiritual healing. And some people have taken this because Matthew, uh, in I'm not exactly sure which chapter, but it talks about this prophecy being fulfilled and Jesus doing physical healings. And some people take that to extreme to talk about how we're never to be sick and stuff like that. And that's not what he's talking about. But there is a physical healing that is to come. And that's the renewing of our bodies. No matter what wound you have, one day you will no longer weep. No, one day you will no longer cry because you won't have pain. You won't have sorrow and you won't have that wound inside of you. Because God is renewing all of creation to himself one day when he comes back. So it's physical healing and spiritual healing. One day he'll take all the pain. I imagine Jesus coming back and it's like the curtain closing after a long movie, a long play and, and Jesus comes out to take a bow and everyone claps and cheers and every single knee bows at the sight of God. Why? Because it was a magnificent performance by Jesus to come down to this earth and die and be bruised and wounded. All this was a plan for us. Our response, what do we do with it? We see what Jesus has done. And what do we do? Verse 6, all we like sheep have, what? Gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of the iniquity, all of the sin, all of the pain has been laid on Christ himself. Realize there could have been a possible world in which no one accepted Jesus and his death on the cross be a failure. Can you imagine that? Imagine for a second a world in which Jesus says, I'm going to die for this world regardless, of, regardless if they uh, accept me or not. He goes into the world, dies for sins, and no one accepts him. Knowing that possibility, he still came to this earth because he knew there were at least some people that cared. Some people that said, I don't want to live in sin. Why do people still continue in sin? I just don't, I don't understand. There are some people that say, I want to live my life a certain way. And they just do not care. They look at the life of Jesus. People that some of your friends have walked away from God they look at the cross and said, well, that's a sad story, but it's not sad enough. You know, that's, that was a nice movie I saw. But, you know, these days we got a lot of entertaining graphics and we have a lot of special effects. And these days that story just, it's 2,000 years ago. It's not that depressing. I'm not moved by it. Jesus had to do something more. They just do not care. They want their sin and they want God and they get neither. They are unaffected by the fact that Jesus suffered for their sakes. But here's a problem. Because I can point fingers at all the people that walk away from Jesus. But the problem is I find myself going astray too. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. 
thing with sheep is they're not like dogs. If a dog runs away from home, it knows how to get home. It knows how to come back to get food. It knows if there's a bowl of water and it, it, can, it can do on its own. A, a sheep, if that's even a word, I think it is. Sheep can come back only at the aid of their master. Sheep are really good at recognizing faces. They're really good at seeing someone, recognizing a face and saying, I have to go after that person. That is my master. My sheep hear my voice and they know it's me calling, Jesus said. But sheep have no idea how to get back home if there's no master. All we like sheep have gone astray. That's why Jesus said, I have to go out. Even if there's one sheep missing from the flock, I'm going to go find it. All we like sheep have gone astray. I find myself... I find it very hard to wake up in the morning early and pray for you guys. And I'm just being honest. And I think that's because there's an evil spiritual realm that doesn't want me to pray for you guys. I do my best, but I find myself going astray. I find myself reading and studying and not getting anything out of it and saying, well, I got to teach this Friday, so I got to come up with something. And some of you guys do the exact same thing, except you have no position to serve. So you just kind of read and you're like, well, I guess that's it. I read for the day and you didn't get the historical background or the context and you don't really care because you just did your requirement and you move on. All of us go astray. I'm not saying that to point the finger at you. I'm pointing the finger at all of us. We find ourselves walking away and even that walking away is something that Jesus died for. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. There's a, a lot of times that when you're falsely accused for something, you want to defend yourself. If you are blamed for something, you want to stand up and say, no, that wasn't my fault. Jesus, even though he did nothing wrong, he did nothing. He did not speak a word in defense of himself. Though he could have at any point said, yeah, I didn't do this. These are false accusations. He said not one thing. He let his life be that example. Why? So that the plan of God could be fulfilled through Jesus for the redemption of the world. At any time, if he wanted to be selfish, he could have. But Jesus, the one person who's entitled to do all things for his own glory and all things for his own self, did it for our sakes. Selfless love. A sacrifice for many. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says, Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor besides, beside God's throne. He saw the end result. Do we see the end result? when we're in suffering, when we're in a trial, do we say, okay, I'm falsely accused, but God has something better for me. And if I just let my life be the example, I'm sure I'll figure out what it is later. Verse 10, 
Here is something really, really strange. Ready? Here we go. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to bruise him? He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. What does that mean? It pleased the Lord to bruise him. How is God pleased at the death and torture of his only begotten son? Well, he's pleased in the sense that it was a job well done. He finished the race. Remember what he said on the cross. It is finished. And God the Father, I can imagine, along with all the angels, cheered and clapped. Why? Because through his shame, we were all redeemed. What looked like a victory for Satan was actually a victory for Christ and God the Father. In that although we were once far from him, now we have been brought near through the great high priest who constantly makes intercessions for us, who prays for us even when we don't pray to him, who cares for us even though sometimes we don't even care about him, who loves us even though we did not love him. There is no other way for salvation. There is no other way to get to heaven. Otherwise, Jesus' death was in vain. It was for nothing. It was a failure. Why in the world did Jesus die for our sins? If there was any other way, don't you think he would have done it? But he did it to show you how much he loves you. That's not possible without suffering. Love is not possible without suffering with and for someone. And that's what Jesus set out to do for us. And you see, now the challenge. As Nicholas Wolterstorff a philosopher uh, who's also a Christian once said, when Jesus commanded us to love one another, in the commandment to love, he invites us to suffer. You see, it's in love that God himself invites us to join with him in the suffering. And we wonder why it's so hard to be a Christian. It's because we get a taste of what Jesus went through and experience a greater joy and greater love in the end. Don't look at the trial. Don't look at the suffering as if it's forever because there's something greater coming. If you just endure till the end and not give up, not lose heart, he has a reward for you. But we give up in the suffering. We give up in the trial because it's just too hard. It's, it's just the wound is too big and we've forgotten that God's, God came to heal all the wounds. So don't look at the wound and how bad it looks because one day our bodies will be renewed along with all of creation and every tear will be wiped away. But some are living like he died for nothing. Some are living like they don't even care. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 for a second. Hebrews chapter 10. In verse 26, it says, If we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. 
Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why did I tell you that? Why did I bring you that scary verse? It's not to scare you. There's a reason why I think there's, I can get really serious whenever there's an altar call in the main service. And if people are joking or Snapchatting or Instagramming, I will yell at you and I'm not ashamed to do it. Why? Because there are some people that are on the verge of tears praying every single day for that person who walked up for altar call. And maybe that's that brother or sister they've been praying for a long time. They finally get up there and they'll turn around and see you laughing at them and giggling at them. What kind of message does that show? You know what that shows? Trampling the Son of God underfoot. Like you don't care. It's just not good. Why do we do this? Why why don't we care when God calls us to follow him? Don't do it. I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry because I promise I wouldn't. And I don't cry anyway. This is the moment you're all excited. (sighs) So that's why I also take communion very seriously. Because some people take it as a joke and some people laugh. But it's not a joke. It's not. Moving on. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 53. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Is it not us, brothers and sisters in the Lord? Is it not us that he has, has died and showed his entire life before us on display so that we could live because he has died for our sins. And, and some of us don't even believe it. It's 2,000 years ago. What does that matter for me today? The saddest story in all history doesn't seem to move anyone anymore. Everyone wants to be entertained. And if it's not convenient for me, I'm not going to show up at youth group. If it's not convenient for me, if it's boring on a Sunday, I'm not going. Because people aren't moved by the saddest story in all history anymore. They aren't sad when they're friends fall into sin. They aren't sad when, when people abandon their families and run away and start living after themselves, not realizing they could go down the exact same road if it were not for the blood of Jesus stopping them, saying you will go here and no further, just like the waves, just like the storms, and just like the peace he gives you that was only brought by his chastisement. He bore that for our griefs, for our sakes. And what about us? Where has the cross left us? It should paralyze any of our selfish ambitions, any of the will to live for ourselves because we've been bought for a price. Therefore, live for Christ with your life and glorify him. You are not your own. So I'm trading my sorrows. I'm trading my shame for the joy of the Lord, as the song says. That's ridiculous. I get to give up everything that I'm sad about. I've been really depressed this week. I've been really depressed this month and this year. 
but I'm trading that for the joy of the Lord. Why don't we walk in peace? Why don't we walk in joy? It's because we're still holding on to our wounds and not letting God make the organ transplant. And that's what he wants to do in your life. By his wounds, we are healed. The mystery of the love of God. The mystery of the love of God. We might not fully comprehend it. I don't understand everything that happened in this passage. But one thing I know, Jesus died for my sins. I was a filthy, rotten sinner. I would have been a lot worse. But if it were not for his grace, I don't know why he did it. But he chose me to be here. He chose you to be here on a night when half the youth group didn't come. Why? To hear the word of God and for your life to be changed so that you would leave here a different person. And it means something. Charles Spurgeon said, if I were to die for any one of you, speaking to his congregation, what would it amount to but that I pay the debt of nature a little sooner than I must ultimately have paid it? For we must all die sooner or later, but the Christ needed not to die at all. So far as he himself was personally concerned, there was no cause within himself why he should go to the cross to lay down his life. He yielded himself up a willing sacrifice for our sins. Something that's mind-boggling and a thought to close on is, this is the translation of that quote. If I were to die for your life, all I would have done is entered into death a little bit sooner than I was scheduled. But I was going to die anyway. But for Jesus to die for our sins, he entered into something that he would have never, ever experienced, ever. But by coming to this world, he brought himself under death, which you remember, death was the curse of sin. And he was brought under that curse so that he could be risen to glory and he could be esteemed, risen up. And the question now is, will you esteem him stricken? Will you look at his life and do something about it? Will you love one another, be willing to enter into that suffering? Or will you just figure, man, God must have really not liked him. He must have done something wrong. There must be some other way. I might be able to conquer the sin if only I had a little bit more energy. I might be able to do this or do that if only I were more capable. And God would say to you today, you have a wound. It needs fixing and only I can do it. 